Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 as we continue our study of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 15 on the resurrection. Let us hear the word of God, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 23. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who were asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. This is the word of the Lord. So this begins in the book of 1 Corinthians, a section where the Apostle Paul deals with false teaching. And in that church, some, and the word some isn't all, it isn't many, it's a some. So in other words, it was a very limited group. And we know that also because the Apostle Paul can get really intense in opposing false doctrine. The book of Galatians is, is the perfect example. And the Apostle Paul, there, there's not the emotional intensity to this section correcting them. And so it's likely that it was a small group of people in the church who were saying that there was no resurrection of the dead. All right? And the Apostle Paul says... Now, if Christ, verse 12, is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If you look at him, what he's saying is, we preach Christ, we preach Christ raised from the dead. You take preaching Christ, preaching the resurrection of Christ, they're like that. You can't separate them. But there were people in the church that thought you could separate them. Now, how does this come about? Well, if you read students of Scripture, pretty much most of them say that what they believe is that these people in the church were like the Sadducees among the Jews at the time of Christ. You remember there were two main groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And from my perspective, the Pharisees are to the right, the Sadducees are to the left. So it's the Pharisees, it's the Sadducees. And the, sad, the, 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 the Sadducees are sad because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They're sad, you see? All right? Now, when you hear that, you think, well, that's weird. You know, God's people, there were some among them. And I say, yeah, not just some among them, but they were the main competitor with the Pharisees for the allegiances of the people spiritually. All right? 
We think that that's what was in this church, that there were some former Sadducees, but what was, what was the thinking behind the Sadducees? They didn't just go out and say, well, I'd like to be sad, you see. What would be in their minds that would cause them to deny the resurrection of the dead? I was telling uh, somebody earlier today that one of my favorite parts of, of all of Scripture is where the Apostle Paul is in the midst of a, a tense situation, and there are both Pharisees and Sadducees there, and he says, I'm on trial because of the, I believe in the resurrection of the dead! You know? And it's just this, it's like, it's like you know, when you spray ether into a diesel, you know? You go, and, and the engine starts. That's what he was doing. He was starting the engine. What he wanted was to be able to sort of slink away while the two sides fought with each other. And sure enough, they did. Well, what they were fighting over was, a whole, it wasn't just they believe in the resurrection of the dead. They, they don't. It stood for a whole worldview. And what was the worldview of the Sadducees? Well, their worldview was that their intellectual sophistication caused them not to have to have the kind of supports that stupid people need. And if you want to understand intellectuals, what you have to understand is intellectuals are always trying to cut away the supports that normal people use for their lives. Okay? Does this make sense to you? And so it wasn't just the resurrection of the dead they wanted to cut away. They wanted to cut away anything other than just the intellectual commitment, bare bones intellectual commitment to the gospel and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the Sadducees were the same. They were the liberals. And the liberals are always just like this with intellectuals. I realized this when I was, uh, entered the ministry in the PCUSA, the mainline denomination, and we got a denominational magazine. You know, denominations always have magazines, and, and, and so you read it to keep track of who's doing what. And there was an, a long article in our national magazine about the church where I had been the custodian for, for several years. And I'm reading this article, and I knew, the, I knew the pastor who had come after I had left. So in the interim, I had gone to work at First Prison Boulder, then we'd gone to Boston where we did seminary, and then we came back. It was a few years later, and they had gotten a pastor who was very, very sophisticated, intellectually. You know, you knew it as soon as you met him that he was very sophisticated intellectually, right? And so this article was about this man, and it, it described how he had a very close friend who was a theologian. I've never figured out what a theologian is, you know, let alone a housewife theologian. I, I just, what is a theologian, you know? Well, somebody who studies God. But it seems to me that to be alive and to study God is the same thing, you know? So I don't know what a theologian is. But anyhow, this intellectual pastor in an intellectual community that's very liberal, Madison, Wisconsin, had a dear, dear friend who was a theologian and taught in a seminary. And he'd taken a sabbatical, and he decided that he was going to come out and spend the sabbatical at the church of this pastor. And so this pastor went into his congregation and got people to agree that they would be in a study group with his intellectual theologian friend. So this, this was about, you know, the sort of 
town and gown kind of, you know, where the intellectual came into the group of the simple people in the church and opened up thoughts to them that would make them able to be enlightened. Y'all with me? Well, I didn't like it at all. I didn't trust the pastor, and I certainly didn't trust his theologian friend. And then, I'll never forget reading about the organist. Well, the organist was a very simple, transparent, humble, wonderful woman. And I remember that she was one of the people that this pastor had gotten to be in this study group. And so she's describing what happened being in the study group with this theologian who the intellectual pastor got in her going. And, and here's what I remember. What she said in the article was that after this study group, she understood that it really didn't matter whether Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What mattered is that Jesus is. And I hated that pastor and I hated the theologian. That they had placed a stumbling block in front of this simple Christian woman. And that she had been enlightened so that she became unhinged with truth. And she thought truth didn't matter. She thought transcendent truths relegated hard truths to the dust heap of history. It doesn't matter if Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What matters is Jesus is. And I remember just thinking and thinking, you know, there are certain things that happen to you in life, and you just keep running them around in your brain. You're like a cow ruminating. And I don't think I've ever had a deeper understanding of intellectuals than I came to having ruminated on that for quite a while. And I realized that it's almost a definition of an intellectual that they remove all the supports they possibly can from faith. And that the more supports are removed... With faith still existing, he is, you know, that that's their crowning glory. You know, if we can teach Christians to not believe in the resurrection of the dead and not to believe in Bethlehem and not to believe in the virgin birth, and the more, the more foundation we remove and the house remains, why, I have succeeded and I can die content. Do you understand this? This is what higher education has become. You can take away all the laws against pornography. You can take away the laws against abortion. You can take away the laws against homosexuality. You can have the Constitution a living document. You can talk and talk and write and write and talk and talk and write and write and write and talk and talk and talk. And you still stay married. And you still have children in your home, and you don't let them look at pornography, and you don't have them doing drugs and alcohol, and all the people that live outside of your community, the law has removed every single protection for the sheep. 
and you know not to let your children use drugs, but to heck with Owen County. And guess what? Guess what? Owen County is dying. And the intellectuals sit in Bloomington and they're so cocksure that they've given a gift to the world of removing every single law, every single condemnation, every single threat. And this is exactly what was going on in Corinth and what's going on in Bloomington today. Corinthians were so sophisticated that they didn't need any laws. They didn't, they didn't need the resurrection. <laughs> you know why? Well, because we know that the body is, I mean, honestly, who feels dignified about their body? You know, isn't a real intellectual somebody who is a disembodied brain? Right? I mean, a disembodied brain has risen to the very top of the heap no matter what their degrees are. Once you forget about your body and think, eh, the body doesn't matter, it's just humiliating. I mean, right? You ever thought about your body? It is humiliating, right? Wouldn't it be better if we were just disembodied brains? I'd like to be a disembodied brain. The older I get, the more I'd like to be a disembodied brain. (laughs) You know? All the indignities of old age. And so here they were, proud. The cross was foolishness. But they were willing to humble themselves to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus, but they themselves didn't need it, you know. And so they began to say, some of them, that there was no resurrection of the dead because really, you know, don't you want to be an ethereal spirit? Do you really want to see your body again once you're done with it? I mean, there's a certain existence after death that's in Christ that, you know, what matters is not Bethlehem, but that Jesus is. And that I continue to exist after death, but it's not me, you know, or it's me, but it's me in a manner of speaking. I mean, let's move some more of the props. You know, let's get rid of them. And so it's a certain, you know, Cynthia character, you know, that's a part of the earth mama You know, and Cynthia doesn't need to be Cynthia anymore. She doesn't even need personhood anymore. She can just be a part of the cosmic earth goddess that gives life because it's nurturing. You see, it would be possible to be a very sophisticated Corinthian, to be in the church, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but not to believe in your own resurrection. And this is the Corinthians. And they're still among us today. All of us have this tendency to want to be done with our bodies. I have, you you argue with me, and I'm going to continue to say it publicly. I have no question that this is the thrust behind cremation among Christians. We're just so humiliated that, that to think that anybody would waste time on taking us, you know, to a grave in a box and, and putting it in the ground and dumping. I mean, honestly, who needs that? I'll seize my destiny and I'll go into a natural gas furnace and be burned up. And then what the 
then smash my bones and, and nobody's going to go to my graveside. Or if they are, they're just going to sprinkle some ashes and it'll just go back to nature and Mother Earth and it'll just be, you know, none of this planting. Have any of you planted recently? You know, I mean, honestly, down on your knees in the mud and then your wife has to wash your dungarees and, and you know, and I mean, planting is such a humiliating thing. You know, why not let the Mexicans do it? I don't need to plant. I don't need to be kneeling in mud. Come on. It's very humiliating to be next to a grave and to put a body in a box and carry it there. You know, I'm at the point where I don't, if I, if I could, I would snap my finger. I'd never do another funeral. I just wouldn't do them anymore. Why? Well, <laughs> because you don't have to have a body at a funeral. You know, you can just tell jokes and, and talk about jokes they told and, you know, celebration of life and all this stuff. Nobody needs to be humble at a funeral anymore. You know what my favorite time of being a pastor is? absolutely drop-dead gorgeous is the graveside service. I love them. I absolutely love them. I'm, I'm honest. Because there you are, a little bedraggled group. Typically the people that are there are the real lovers, you know? And there you are, you're bedraggled, it's often raining, the tent, it's windy, you can't control the weather. It's cold. I think the favorite one I've ever had was this couple who were not married, they had a baby, and the baby was sick. And so the baby went into the neonatal unit in, in Madison, and all of these doctors and nurses, they, they worked themselves hard to save the baby's life but they weren't able and the baby died. So I was asked to do the funeral because we lived behind the funeral home. So when they had somebody that didn't have anybody to bury them, I, I'd get the privilege of doing it. And so I went over and I remember going into the, uh, the funeral home for the funeral. And I'm gonna guess there were more, no more than five or six people there. And four of them were the doctors and nurses. And that was so beautiful to me. It was winter. It was very cold. It was Wisconsin. And when we got done the funeral, what you always do, or always used to do, is what? Well, you immediately get into the cars, and you take this little tiny baby, and you go to the grave, and you put the baby in the ground. And I remember the funeral director came up to me and said, we're not going to go to the grave. It's too cold and there's a lot of snow. And I said, oh, yes, we are. <laughs> oh, yes, we are. And I said, not only that, but the father and mother are going to come. You know, they didn't even know each other. And so guess what? Little bedraggled group. And we go out to the cemetery on the north side of Partyville, out in the country, 
there was so much snow that you could not walk outside of the door of the car without getting it into your shoes. It was 8, 12 inches, freezing cold. And there's the funeral director and this this young, probably 19-year-old man and then 17-year-old woman, mother of the child. None of the doctors and nurses were able to come. I'm sure that they had driven an hour from Madison. They had to get back to work. And there they are, the father and the mother and the funeral director and me. And I don't think I've ever been as happy to help somebody as I was then. Man that is born of woman has but a few years to live. He comes up like a flower and then he's cut down in the midst of life we live in and death. And of who must we seek from relief for relief, but of thou, O Lord, who for our sins art justly displeased. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Suffer us not from any pains of death to fall from thee. Inasmuch as it has pleased Almighty God to take this soul from this earth, we now return his body, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, when the Lord will return with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. And the intellectuals tell us that there is no resurrection of the dead. Listen, who is the first fruits? You read the text. Who's the first fruits? Jesus Christ. And this whole section, what the Apostle Paul says, look, you don't believe in the resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And, you know, the intellectuals had not thought about that. <laughs> that was shocking to them. They thought they had their chop logic, you know. It's just boop, 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 boop. Then there's no resurrection of Jesus. Oh, no, 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 we've protected that part. We didn't see that one coming. And, and, and then our preaching is, oh, no, no, Paul, we love you to preach. We just love your preaching. And your faith is vain. Well, no, our faith is just different. <laughs> you know? I have my faith, you have your faith. We all have faith. We're all people of faith. <laughs> you know? You remember what G.K. Chesterton says in my favorite essay. I quote it in Sunday school. You missed it if you weren't there. In his essay, The Drift from Domesticity, he starts it out by saying, in the matter of reforming things as opposed to deforming them. Do you get it? He says, I have a certain commitment, and my commitment is if a man comes along and says that he wants to take something away, I make him explain to me why it was put there in the first place before I let him take it away. And so here are these intellectuals in, in the Corinthian church where they were going to take away the resurrection of the God. Bop, 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 right? And so the Apostle Paul says, okay, do you know what you're doing? And they say, of course we know what we're doing. We're intellectuals. We always know what we're doing. And then the Apostle Paul says, okay, do you know what you're undoing? And the Apostle Paul says, 
Now, if Christ is preached, he's been raised, how does somebody, but if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And they go, oh, no. We thought we were just tweaking, tweaking things a little, you know. And if Christ has not been raised, and our preaching is vain, they go, oh, no. And then they say, and your faith also is vain. Oh, no. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God. In other words, the Apostle Paul and everybody preaching the gospel is lying in the name of God. Okay? And they're false witnesses against God because God will not tolerate anyone saying that he has said something that he has not said. He takes truth real seriously. And in the Old Testament, if you were a prophet of God and you said something that he hadn't told you to say, it was the death penalty. Okay? We are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And they're going, oh, no! And then he keeps going. For if the dead are not, not even Christ has been raised, so he has to go back and show you the, the original premise, all right? And he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And they're going, I didn't know I was doing that! I had good intentions, <laughs> you know. You are still in your sins. And how would you like to still be in your sins? How would you like to be in your sins, truthfully? How would you like to have no hope for forgiveness of sins? Huh? It is a thought that is worse than death. <laughs> you think of Aaron Hernandez, you know, the Pats, what was he, a tight end or a receiver, wide receiver? What was he? Tight end. And he is convicted of murdering a man. And there are other things, if you go online and read about him, horrible, horrible things about his life. And he got to the point, he was acquitted. He'd just been acquitted the week before of other murder. And he just got to the end. And so what did he do? He, he, he wrote across his forehead, John 3.16, and then he wrote it. I, I want to say, it was in red, but was it in his blood? On the wall of his cell, John 3.16. And then he hung himself. And I, I want to tell you honestly, there's not one person here that has any trouble understanding that. None of us. Because all of us who are Christians have faced our sin to the point where we despair of ourselves. And that's the beginning of the Christian life. That is what Christians have in common that makes us love one another. Because we're not lying to each other. We're not demanding that we be flattered. <laughs> we just look at ourselves and we puke and, and we run to Jesus. 
that's my testimony. It doesn't get any more sophisticated than that. Honestly. I hate the fact that the church in America today is so successful and prosperous. I hate it. Because everybody thinks that it's a bunch of clean people, (laughs) you know, that feel superior. We say that homosexuality is wrong. Everybody thinks we think we're superior because we're not homosexual. But they don't know we're not homosexual. What they really know is that we confess homosexuality in ourselves is sin, and we don't want to talk about it. We just want to repent of it. You know, like fornication, like gossip, like greed, like all our sins, right? That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is absolutely, completely, and utterly revulsed by our sin. My sin, not yours. That's the definition of a Christian. And so he flees to the righteousness and blood of Jesus. It's the only thing that will give him relief. And so here at the end of these intellectuals' trip, you know, they find out that they are still in their sin. And there's no hope. There's absolutely no hope. This last week I was talking to a man who attends worship here who isn't a Christian, and we had a long discussion. And near the end of the discussion, after, you know, trying to deny that there was such a thing as truth and that you could know it, you know, that everything was relative, and I had my perspective, he had his, on and on and on. Um, It was very interesting. At the end of the conversation, this man said to me, I kept pushing to humility and sin, you know. (laughs) You know, humility and sin. And at the very end, he, he said to me, and I don't remember his exact words, but this is pretty close. He said, you know, he said, if I were to become a Christian, it would not be because I want to be forgiven after death. He said, I want to be forgiven now. <laughs> oh, you know. And I thought to myself, you're so close to the kingdom of God. You're so close. Because, you know, that moment that you fall before Jesus and he becomes your righteousness, describe it. And I think he did a pretty good job of describing it. I'm not so worried about not being able to bear my sins after death. It's right now I can't bear them, right? And here, here these intellectuals are, you know, chop logic. Take out this support. Take out this support. And the Apostle Paul says, do you know what you're doing? And they say, yeah. And he says, no, you don't, because you don't know what you're undoing. You know, Christ has not been raised, you know. We're false witnesses against God. You know, our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. You're still in your sins. And they're going, <laughs> yikes. They're about halfway down. But he doesn't, you know Paul, the Apostle Paul, you know him? Hmm? He never stopped. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And listen, no matter what was true of Aaron, as he hung himself in his prison cell, I guarantee you that he had a godly grandmother 
that he believed knew God and was in heaven. Even if he despaired for himself, he was iron-fisted in his hope for the loved ones that he loved who believed in Jesus. You, you can die. You can commit suicide. But then he comes along and tells you that your grandmother, who's godly, is lost eternally. And you can't bear that. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. They didn't know what they were doing. You know, they, they thought that they were just simply facing hard realities as intellectuals are wont to do. And, you know, there's a certain living on, a certain resurrection, but it's not the resurrection of the body. So they were like burning the bodies and smashing them and they weren't burying them, they weren't planning them, they were just scattering them. Do you know that one of the commentaries I read on this text in explaining, I know you often think that I'm making things up and you think my allusion to cremation is insane. Nobody in their right mind would allude to cremation in a sermon on this text, right? But do you know that I almost never bring something up in a sermon that is not in one of the few commentaries I read? Do you know that one of the commentaries, it doesn't talk about cremation today, what it says is, well, you know, they were, they were prepared to give up the resurrection of the body because back then, you know, the bodies were burned and reduced to ashes, and it just seemed insane to think that that body would come back to life. And of course, the author of that commentary was writing back when no Christian in the world cremated. No Christians have ever cremated Never! And so he had the luxury of saying this without getting people angry at him. (laughs) You know? But I thought, you know, I ought to, like, let you see what you're doing by letting you see what you're undoing. And did you notice what happens here? He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he says that little phrase, what? The first fruits. (laughs) The first fruits. You remember what the first fruits were. The first fruits were the things that you brought to God at the very beginning. They were the first stalks of asparagus. And you brought them to God and gave them to God, and they represented the entire harvest. Jesus is the first stalks of asparagus. And because he lives, you and I will live. And the proof of it is he's the first fruit. He's the first fruit. And so we are in him. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Yeah, you're getting moles and your skin. I look at my hands sometimes. And I honestly, I, I, I don't think about it. And I think, whose hand is that? Where did that? Oh, that's me. Huh. Really? That's an old man's hand. It's wrinkled. Huh! But I'm in Christ, 
And because I'm in Christ, I will rise. And that's why I love the graveside service, because it's a service of witness to the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I always try to get people that I do their funeral services to put on the front of the bulletin, a service of worship and testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all you do when a loved one dies. You either testify to the resurrection of Christ and this loved one is dead in Christ and he too shall rise. Or you testify to the inanity of your existence. And those are the only two options. You tell jokes. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now, I want to say something here. I've often had problems reading that because what I've wanted to do with that is to say, well, in Adam we all died, in Christ we'll all be made alive, and so it's tit for tat. They both work in the same way. Everyone died in Adam. Everyone will be raised from the dead in Christ. The sin of Adam corrupted everyone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ will raise everyone. And this is the basis of a lot of intellectuals who tell you that they're universalists or hide it from you. They believe that Jesus saves everyone, whether they like it or not. Because look at it. It says, by a man came death, by a man also came Addison and Adam, all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But you realize that the word all doesn't have to work with Adam and Jesus in the same way, right? Right? Scripture from beginning to end warns us against the one who can throw our body and soul into hell. It's obvious that not everyone is going to be in heaven. And so that all must work in such a way that it allows for many, in fact most, because the way is broad, and most people find it that leads to hell. That's what Jesus said. And so the all has to work. What it's saying is that everyone who dies, dies because they were in Adam. Everyone who lives, lives because they are in Christ. All will be made alive. In other words, not anybody will be made alive who isn't in Christ. Do you understand that? But see, you don't. And here's the reason you don't. You're an American. You don't believe in representative government. We all believe that America won't quite have ascended to, to, to the level of a pure democracy that it should until we all vote on the internet. And Russia can't mess it up. Right? We, none of us want to be represented by anyone. We don't want our father representing our mother. We don't want our parents representing us. We don't want the elders representing the congregation. We don't want Mayor Hamilton, or what's his name? Is it Hamilton? We don't want Mayor Hamilton making decisions about annexation. Do you see this? We're completely opposed to any representative. We hate it. But God set up the world in such a way that when Adam sinned, we died. And if you refuse to have Adam, not Eve, Adam, a man, if you refuse to have Adam as your federal head and you deny it, you must deny 
that you have life through your federal head, Jesus Christ. You can't claim Christ and refuse Adam, okay? And you look here and in Romans, and it makes it so clear, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Go ahead. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ, it is coming. Listen, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And we believe that after the general resurrection, some will depart to heaven and many will depart to hell. And the difference is, that those of us who are accepted by God into his heaven, not ours, will be accepted on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Because it's the only thing that can wash our sins away. And so we're not intellectuals. We're not logicians. We're not people who believe in reason. Okay? We believe in Jesus and we believe in the Word of God, the Bible. And if anything contradicts the Bible, it's a lie. And when the sophisticates in our church tell us that wives don't need to submit to the husbands because if you look at the Greek word authentane or kephalite, we're just like impervious to it because we love the Bible. And if somebody comes along and says they're a Christian, believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they say that we won't be raised, but we will, it doesn't matter that Je- Bethlehem doesn't matter, what matters is Jesus is. We're just impervious to it. We're just ploddingly simple, meek, and humble. And if the Bible says it, that's it. The Bible says that Christ is the first fruits. And so here's what we do. We take our loved ones and we plant them just like lettuce. We get down on our knees and we make a hole and we put them in the ground and then we sing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. And the world can laugh. Remember the the sophisticates at Athens. Oh, yeah, they were so sophisticated in Athens when Paul came and told them of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the general And they laughed, and they laughed, and they laughed. And do you think the Apostle Paul was bothering it? Somehow I don't think it phased him. I think he probably said, okay, you laugh. There are some here, though, who can't bear their sins, and I'm going to talk to them. And he moved on, you know? Listen, we're really simple people, and we're not ashamed of being simple. We're meek, and we're not ashamed of being meek. And yeah, if there isn't a resurrection, we're of all people most pathetic. (laughs) We are truly idiots. 
Yeah, yeah. Because our Father loves us, and so he disciplines us much more than he disciplines the wicked. (laughs) Ain't it great to be loved? And also because we give up things and hold on to them in such a way that it makes it clear that this world is not our home. And so things are light. We're not, Calvin uses a word that corresponds, it's translated gourmands, okay, in his, in, in his commentary on this. You know, we're not gourmet people, you know, we're not foodies, right? I mean, we shouldn't be. You know, and, and we're not, we don't think that this world is all there is. We're not eating, drinking, and being merry. We do grieve at sin. We grieve at those who suffer. There are a lot of things in this world that are different for us than they are for other people. Are you with me? And it's because we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And it's because this world is in our home. Now, one last thing and I'm done. Um... You know how you always feel guilty that we're not having worship services with other conservative Bible-believing churches here in town? You know, we, we wish that we could be worshiping with other churches, you know? Okay? Do you know why we don't? What's going on right now in the church in America is persecution has started. And there's a winnowing. And the church is going to be unrecognizable in another 10 years. Because there won't be a legacy of Christian faith. It's been removed from the public square, and now the churches are getting sifted. It's just like harvest. And what's happening in the churches is that churches themselves are getting divided between those who are ashamed of these things and those who these things are their life. And it divides families. It divides one child from another. It divides pews. It divides churches. It divides conservative Bible-believing churches. It's not that one church goes out and says, You know, we look at all the other churches and none of them are Christians. But boy, when we discipline the child of one of our elders, when we discipline one of the rich couples in our church, that child and that couple can go out to another church and they can lie through their teeth about why they have left this church. And then you begin to see the character of other Christians. Do you understand this? And so really what's happening in the church today is we're seeing the division between those who are of all people most pitiable if the resurrection has not occurred. And those who life just goes on. We're seeing the division of those who love the discipline of God and who do not hold on to this world with claws. And those who love this world and the things of the world. And that division is going on in the church.
And we didn't choose it. We didn't choose the battle line would be at homosexuality. All right? We didn't say, well, let's have a fight with the world over homosexuality. The world said, let's have a fight with the church over homosexuality. And kablam, it blew sky high. And we said, no, 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 I don't know more. I'm tired of waking up on the floor. No, thank you, please. It only makes me sneeze. We've repented. But they won't have our repentance because they won't repent. Well, they're going to fight us on fornication, on adultery, on unbiblical divorce and remarriage, adultery. They're going to fight us on homosexuality. They're going to fight us every single place that we stand unashamed of the words of Jesus Christ. And it's going to divide our children. It's going to divide some of our marriages and has. It's going to divide the church. It's going to divide a pew. But don't you turn aside because you've given up everything for Jesus because he gave up everything for you. Don't stop carrying your cross. Don't refuse to die. How can you be raised from the dead if you refuse to die? Okay? Don't be scandalized by it. Jesus said this was going to happen. Calvin on this text has a commentary uh, that I've never forgotten. I've preached this text a number of times through the years um, on Easter. And it's very interesting because I've largely followed Calvin's comments on the text in talking about the fact that, you know, two things. Number one, we're more disciplined by our Father than the worldlings are, and so it's harder to live for us. And then number two, that um, we don't hold on to the good things of the world the way the, the, the unbelievers do, okay? And then he says, and there's one more reason why we're of all people most to be pitied. And he says, but it's not us. He says it's the early Christians. And then he goes on about how in the time of the early church, uh, you were despised if you were a Christian. And so I'm reading this, and I remember what I thought of it 30 years ago when I entered the ministry, you know? And now I'm looking at it now and I'm thinking, yikes. We're getting back there where we can have all three reasons restored to us. Do you understand this? All three. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of repentance. Don't be ashamed of being a sinner. That's who Jesus died for. Let's come to the Lord's table.